in. Well, Socrates once said that uh, an unexamined life is not worth living. A different translation of that is that an unquestioned life is not worth, worth living. And he said that in the context of his own trial that eventually led to his execution because he was charged with teaching his followers to question everything, which oftentimes uh, rattles the status quo. And so he answered in one of his defenses, he said, and a life that doesn't question things, a life that doesn't examine things isn't really worth living. And I have to say that I, I um, for the most part, I agree with that. Um, that is, that if we don't stop and take the time to think and ask the questions, what am I doing? Why am I here? That's a motivational question. Or where am I going? A directional question. If we don't take time to examine motives and principles and actions and thoughts, um, then really I think we're in jeopardy or in danger of just kind of coasting or wandering into a current that's rich with ignorance and self-deception. If we don't take the time to really analyze or examine life, an unexamined life is not worth living. The Scripture, of course, also calls us as, as believers to analyze ourselves, to examine ourselves, to assess and evaluate. Uh, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, he tells us or told the Corinthians and, of course, us through them, he said, examine yourselves and see whether you're in the faith or not. Test yourselves, he says in that context. Examine who you are. Are you really in the faith or not in the faith? You hear David, King David, oftentimes through the Psalms. He has the same basic cry when he looks to the Lord and he says, try me and test me. And that's, of course, what's right here in this particular text in 139 verse 23 and 24, when he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is a call from him to have the Lord test and examine his life. Um, Jonathan Edwards, a theologian in the 1700s, was someone who made a resolution that each day at the end of the day he would examine his life in the areas that, he, that were not in line with Christ and the areas that were, and he would venture and resolve by grace the next day to do better. I mean, he did it each evening. He did an analysis and evaluation of his life. It's, part, it's a necessary part of growth, friends and family. It's, it's a necessary part of our growth and the journey of being a Christian to take time, stop, and ask the questions, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? And where is it all, all going? It's the question of self-examination. And that's the direction we wanted to go on this last Saturday of 2008. It just seems like a, a perfect time to do that. It's to spend time kind of laying out um, what it is to self-examine, but to look at it from a biblical vantage point. Um, what does it mean to biblically self-examine your life, evaluate, assess your life? That's the central thrust of this particular message with the aim that we'll actually practice it and spend some time um, evaluating and assessing our lives in relationship to Jesus. Before I get on to the main subject, though, let me just tell you a little bit as to what drove me in this direction for the message. Mostly, I don't tell you why. I pick the topic or subject. Unless I'm preaching through a book or something like that, then it's self-evident. I'm just going to the next chapter or the next verse. But in this case, I think it might be a little helpful just to kind of weave together a couple of thoughts that have pushed me in this direction that I think warrants us spending an evening just beginning to self-assess and self-examine. One, of course, is just the fact that this is, uh, this is the end of the year, the end of 2008. The last time we will worship on Saturday of 2008 is tonight. 
And we're looking at a brand new year. It's on the horizon next week. And so it just is fitting in terms of time. The end of one year, closing, and beginning of a new year is just a logical time to stop and pause and evaluate. That's one reason. A second reason is just some, a growing perception that I have. And I realize it may not be a correct perception, but if it's not, then you can just let it go. Or if it's not true of you, you can let it go. But I, I just perceive that there is a lot of spiritual coasting that takes place in the body. Not just in this place, but in other Christians that I, I come to know. That is the sense of spiritual apathy. Um, it's especially rampant amongst believers who have, who have been followers of Christ for a long period of time. As most of us know by experience, when a person first comes to Jesus in a very real way, there is this an explosion of passion in their life. It's like a hunger and a thirst they can't quench. They read whatever they can get their hands on. They, they pray with a sense of expectant anticipation like God is actually going to answer their prayers. That they, they freely share about their relationship with Jesus to others as if they can't help it. They just kind of boil over. It's, it's a refreshing thing to see. And there are new believers I have met in our congregation who have this radiant glow of this phase of passion in their life. And, and it, it, it exposes the apathy of those who have been here longer. Because what happens, and you know this, I think most of us can see this, it happens in other things as well as the spiritual life, that you launch in your Christian life with this amazing passion and hunger and desire, but then over a period of time, you begin to crest the hill and you begin to plateau and level out and oftentimes it begins to go downhill, not, not uphill. And that, that happens. It happens. It's a little bit like getting on a freeway. In which, you know, when you go to get on the freeway, you have the pedal to the metal and you're going. You're just speeding up, you know. That's, that's the new Christian. He's got pedal to the metal. I'm going full blast. But then as they get towards the, the, the highway, Interstate 80, they begin to sense the flow of traffic and then they blend in and they let off the gas. And that's what often many of us do spiritually. Now, uh, that analogy is by no means an intent to encourage people to speed and keep going faster and faster on the highway. But spiritually speaking, that's what many of us do. We speed up to the point where we're keeping up with the speed of traffic, and the speed of traffic is how everybody else is living, as if that's the standard by which we live. So we let off the gas because we're in the proverbial status quo. Everybody's kind of going at the same speed. Is that, is that what we're supposed to do? It seems to me that the Christian life is about keeping the pedal to the metal and going as far and as fast as God's grace will allow you to go, regardless of what anybody around you is doing, regardless of the speed of the Christian traffic, so to speak. And I wonder how many of us have, have started running the race to win, but now after a period of time, we are content to jog just to finish. And, and, and if that is indeed the case, and if it's true of you, and my intent is not to lay guilt, it's rather just to lay the cards on the table and say, okay, here's where we're at. Now, where do we go from here? And that's why I think self-evaluation is needed. Just the time to sit back and say, have I let off the gas? Am I, am I at a jog when I was once in a race? Am I running to win, as Paul says, or am I jogging just to finish, just to cross the finish line? Do I got the pedal to the metal? That's an important question for us to answer, and one of the reasons I, I think it's important for us to take this time just to self-evaluate. And one final reason has not so much to do with the church, but the context outside our, our church. And I don't have to tell you that we see um, this moral disintegration all around us in our culture and in our, our city, in our state, in our country. Um, I, I don't know that you can argue that it's not taking place. I mean, testament to that is the very narrow margin by which Proposition 8 passed. Um, 
you just sense, I sense momentum, massive momentum in a particular direction, and it's going downward. And my particular opinion is that a piece of law is not going to restrain that in the end. It's like trying to, uh, to stop a, an avalanche with a, with a uh, chain-link fence. It'll hold maybe for a little bit, but it's going it's to give way. Now, you might say, oh, Dan, you're a little pessimistic. Well, yeah, I suppose I'm pessimistic if, we, if you ask me if we think if the law can actually fix the spiritual darkness. I, I don't think it can. But I'm actually very hopeful when it comes to the possibility of God's people rediscovering and renewing what they were called to do and rediscovering the power and the influence that we can have if we live according to the dictates of the gospel. In that way, I'm very optimistic. But what burdens me about it isn't so much that a piece of legislation was passed or may one day be overturned. Rather, what burdens me about it is just just thinking about where we're at in relationship to certain parts of Scripture and realizing where we are. If you look at where we are, our culture, and through the lens of Romans chapter 1, you know, where Paul argues that there is a, a form of judgment that gives people over to their immoral desires, you know, and God gave them over, and God gave them over, and God gave them over. That, and Paul argues that God's wrath is being revealed, present tense, in the giving over of people to their moral, immoral desires. And that is precisely what's taking place, which would suggest if you look at our culture through the lens of Romans 1, that the judgment of God is already here. Now, I know most people don't like to use the J word. It seems dark, depressing, and some people will say it's even anti-patriotic to suggest that God's judgment is already here. But it's like, what, what, what point do you actually wake up and say, okay, if Paul said this, then it's in fact here. And then, you know, in my mind, I couple that with the fact that we're fighting two wars and we're experiencing kind of this famine of, of economic famine. And, and those things were typically looked at in the prophets of the Old Testament as signs of God removing his blessing. I, that is, you may not share this opinion, but I just see, um, I just see the hand of God at work here. And that means for us as God's people that now are the times to be dead serious about our faith. To be dead serious about our Christian walk. Dead serious about evaluating and saying, okay, Lord, what is it you called me to do? Because I'll tell you, the hope, I think, for our culture lies in one thing. And that is God moving in his people to rediscover who he is. To rediscover the power of the gospel lived out in a way that engages our culture and society. With the love of Christ, with the word of Christ, transforming from the inside out. That to me is the only hope of God's people rediscovering what it means to put the pedal to the metal again. And instead of jogging, to run, run to win. That to me is where the hope lies. And, and that's, those are the three kind of strands that converge to bring us to this particular message. This is what I think requires us to stop and ask ourselves the questions of what am I really doing? Why am I, where are we going? So that's the why behind it. And I hope it's a little helpful in terms of understanding the importance of it. So now we turn to the words of David in Psalm 139, 23 through 24. I'm going to give you four requirements of biblical self-examination. Verse 23, David says this, I've already read it, I'm going to read it again. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me 
and lead me in the way everlasting or the everlasting way. The first thing you see in David does that I think is tremendously helpful for us is that David first and foremost looks to God as the ultimate examiner, as the ultimate counselor of his soul. So he's saying, you search me and you test me and you see if there is anything offensive here in me and then lead me in the everlasting way or the way everlasting. That is to say he looks to God's grace to probe his heart in life and then to reveal what's there. And that's, of course, where all true Christian doctrine begins is with the grace of God. It's recognizing that God is the one who must, in the end, be the examiner, the one who can bring a a perfect perspective on who I am and the difficulties and the issues of my life. That is, he can go far beyond what any any human counselor can do. He can go beyond the symptoms of life. He can reach into the core issues of the heart. That's why David's saying, search me, O God, and know my heart. Know the deep parts of me. And it makes sense why David would would first and foremost, and why we should first and foremost call out to God and say, you examine my soul and reveal the things that are deeply out of a line, if there are any. Because God is the one who knows us, every fiber of our being. That's the whole essence of the entire psalm. If you go back, David acknowledges that God knows him intimately and exhaustively when he says, you, you, you know when I sit, verse 2, and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar off. You discern my going out, my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. That is, he knows that God knows every fiber of his motivation, That is, every sliver of thought, he knows that God knows me intimately and exhaustively more than I know myself. Which is why he looks to the all-seeing eye of God and saying, will you do the examination and will you reveal to me? And the same is is true of us. That's that's where it begins. Because if we try to do self-examination apart from God's grace and apart from his perspective then in the end, I think we get a distorted view of who we are because we have blind spots. Every one of us is biased. We're biased to justify our own actions. We're biased to our own self-deceptions. Just that it's given to our own intellectual powers, the image and the self-image that we portray and think and perception of the self will always be distorted. It's like looking in a carnival mirror. You know, you could be the skinniest guy in the world. You look really fat in front of the mirror. That's, that's what happens when we are left to ourselves to, to, to judge and examine. Which is why David says, no, I, if to do this right, I, you search me. He puts himself in the vulnerable position of saying, God, scour my life. I know it's going to be hard to face certain things, but scour my life. You know how vulnerable it is to actually open your life up to that? Have you ever uh, asked your wife or your son, how good of a husband am I? I was driving my son to school a couple times, and I've asked him, I think, twice now. And I've asked him, Daniel, how am I doing as a dad? And you know, that question just kind of hangs out there in space with this really awkward and anxious silence, like wondering what he's going to say, because it could be very devastating, you know, or revealing. But it's even more so, I think, if you really believe that God will answer your prayer. That is to say, I believe if you cry out to the Lord in sincere faith, believing that, you know what, He is going to reveal. If I ask Him, search me and test me and see if there's any offensive way in me, 
I think if you actually begin to pray those prayers, he's going to start to show you them, some things. And it, and it may be painful, but, but it's, the first, it's the first step really towards, towards moving on, isn't it? And towards spiritual healing and, and um, sanctification, realizing the truth. So it requires grace. It's the first requirement. You go to the Lord and you seek his counsel and his probing eyes. Um, it also requires of us a, a, a very specific goal. We don't just examine ourselves to examine ourselves. There's a goal in mind behind it. And it's even here in these two verses of David when he says, Search me, O God, and test me, and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any uh, offensive way in me. And he closes with this, And lead me in the way everlasting. Lead me to a future. And the future David has in mind by understanding other psalms that he's written always ends with the presence of God, always. Because David's desire for main goal and motivation in self-examination and allowing God to search him is not so that he could have a bigger palace or more wives or stronger chariots or faster camels. That wasn't his aim. It's to lead me in the way everlasting, which... I believe leads to one place, and that is a place David always wanted to be and always wanted to go. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and that I may seek Him in His temple. That is, it was all about the presence and the blessing of God for him. That, that to be with his shepherd and to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That was, that was what he wanted. That was what he wanted more than anything. And, and so the purpose of self-examination in many respects is for him to know more of God. Or to translate it into New Testament a little bit, to the reason for us to self-examine by the grace of God and to evaluate and scrutinize our lives is so that if we discern that there's something that's hindering us or something in the way, some offensive way, that we would repent of it and experience greater measures of the fullness of Jesus in our lives. That we would experience greater faithfulness in His particular call on our lives. As that, that's the goal. In, Lead me in the way everlasting. That's where I want to be. It's a highly relational goal. Have you husbands ever seen that look in your wife's eyes where you realize something's not right? You know, you could be at a dinner party. You could be just the two of you. And she gives you that look. It may not be an evil look. It might just be a look of, of cold, I don't really like you right now. <laughs> Never happens to me. <clears throat> Now I know I can tell just by the look that the, something's, something's amiss. There's the sweetness and the warmth of our relationship is somehow missing. And, and what is it that I do typically? You know, I stop and I think, what did I do? And I start thinking through the conversations that I had and, and did I say something that was rude or belittling or, or dishonoring? Did I, was I bossy? Was I barky? Was, um, did I not step up to the plate the way I should have in this particular situation with one of my children? Did I do something that I shouldn't have done? Did I fail to do something I should have done? What? And normally, 99% of the time when I comb through what I did in my interactions with her, I can usually figure out what created the ripple in my relationship. And after I figure that out, I need to go and repair it, have forgiveness for it, and seek restoration for it. Why? The goal? Because I want the sweetness of the relationship back. And the same is true of the Lord. You know, when you set yourself, sent yourself out in the middle of the dry spiritual desert and, and the joy of the Lord that He promises is missing and you're wondering, Lord, where are you? You know, those are the times to stop and say, just like with your wife, 
What's happened in my life? I bet most of the time, by the grace of God leading us, if we look, we'll realize, oh, there is something there. And it's hindering the fullness of my fellowship with God. I mean, to David, the most important thing was the everlasting way, which is the dwelling with the Lord. You want greater measures of Christ in your life, greater measures of His joy in your life? You know, to experience the thrill and the wonder of doing what He's called you to do and experience the joy of that? It requires self-examination. But that's the goal. I want more of you. I want more of you. I want the relationship back. I want the fullness back. And whatever's hindering it, I want rid of. So it requires grace. It requires this uh, this goal of God Himself. Um, self-examination also requires a standard of measure, doesn't it? A standard of measure. Now, it's not present in this text. But again, you realize... I read through the Psalms of David, there, there was one thing that served as his standard of life, and that was the law of God, his precepts. He meditated upon them day and night. He loved them. He desired his law. Psalm 19, that they were the they were means by which the simple are made wise. They convert the soul. I mean, that was his standard of life, and by which he measured his actions, his attitudes, and his thoughts. The law of God. Now, in for us New Testament believers, there's a bit of a shift. Not a shift of substance, but definitely of form. And that is, our standard of measure is now embodied in the life of Jesus. He's the standard of measure for us. And His gospel of the kingdom. That is the kingdom. He taught us to seek the kingdom first and the gospel of the kingdom first. So that becomes the standard by which we evaluate our lives. The priorities of the gospel, the priorities of Jesus then become the overlay on which we examine whether our priorities are correct or the outworking, the ethical outworkings of the gospel, how we're to treat people, how Christ treated people. That then becomes the overlay on which we examine, am I living this out? So, for example, Jesus did teach us that seek first my kingdom. And at the center of the kingdom, by the way, is the king, Jesus. Seek first my kingdom, which means seeking it, expanding it, living according to its ethical norms. Um, But make your life about the priorities of the kingdom. Now, I take that truth, that standard of measure, and I lay it over my life, and I begin to ask the difficult questions. And by the way, self-examination does not happen in a cluttered, busy life. It requires time and thought. For me to take that overlay of the priorities of the kingdom, the priorities of Christ, the ethics of how Jesus treated people, and for me to start analyzing my life in little slices by asking questions like, okay, where are my energies going and why are they going there? Where is my time going and why is my time going there? Where do the resources that God has put under my my stewardship, where are they going and why are they going there? And And then to dig deeper into the heart of the matter and to say, okay, what is the dominant thought process in my life? What is it that dominates my thinking? What is it that dominates my affections? That is the things that get the most excited, that I most love and most desire. Or what is it that dominates my inclinations of my will? What is it that drives what I do, my will? And then to examine it in light of the gospel and the life of Jesus and to see, do they match? Are they aligned? Or 
Or, I mean, if, if I look at my affections and my inclinations and I look at the dominant thoughts of my mind and I realize, wow, most of it's tied up with laying treasures on this earth, then I have just, I have just discovered by the standard of measure of the gospel where my life is not in sync with Christ and perhaps why I'm so spiritually dry. Which then should lead us to a sense of repentance. Humble desire to see change in life. And that's the fourth and final step or requirement. That is humble repentance. The desire by the grace of God to see change in my life. So that that out of sync, out of alignment life is now brought in sync with the priorities and the ethics of Christ, His life and His kingdom. Humble repentance needs change. And that, by the way, also is grace-based. Every change in life comes because we believe that God has equipped us with the strength to actually do it. That's what David meant at the end when he said, after he said, see if there be any offensive way in me, verse 24, and then lead me in the way everlasting. He acknowledges that once that offense is discovered, once the the, the self-examination and God has sought out and He's revealed the negative things in His life that's keeping Him from experiencing the fullness of God in His life. Then He says, lead me on. In other words, I need your strength to get out of this place. It's the way everlasting. So it is definitely God's grace that allows us the ability to actually change. That's the final step. It's to realize that I... I I've gone through the process. I've prayed. I've sought. I've sought the the knowledge of the all-seeing, all-wise one to give an accurate review of my life at the heart level. And I know that the goal is more of Him, and I want more of Him. And the standard is His gospel. And I've gone through the process, and and I know where my life's out of alignment. Now it's time to actually do the part that we most fail at, and that is to seek that change to respond to what God tells us to do, that if my people will humble themselves and pray, that is if they will acknowledge, and if they will pray and seek my grace, and if they will seek my face, that is they want more of me, and if they're willing to turn away from their wicked ways, then he promises that I will forgive and I'll heal. That's repentance. And it is the place that we fail most often. Most of us, many of us know the areas in our life that are out of sync. And most of us are content to leave them there. That's the sad part. That's the letting off the gas. That's um, not putting the pedal to the metal. Is that we leave them there. You know, the guy who knows that he watches too much TV. I'm just picking TV out of the blue. Spends three or four hours a week, or a, a night watching TV. Knows he neglects his kids, neglects his wife. Um, knows that it's something that wastes his time. And this isn't an argument against what, watching TV, by the way. You watch TV, that's fine. But if it's, if it's an idol in your life, then it's a problem, right? He knows it's a problem, wishes he could give it up, but he doesn't. Never makes the change. Never has the courage to actually maybe cut off his cable or have stringent, stringent guidelines as to how I'm going to, when I'm going to watch. Most never make those kinds of changes. And I think it's for a couple reasons. One is because we continue to live in the delusion of self-justification. It's really not that bad. We don't see it like God sees it. 
But I'll tell you what, if it's keeping you from experiencing the fullness of God in your life, isn't it worth just cutting it off? Whatever that is. Um, The other reason is that sometimes I think what we say and what we believe are two different things. What we say we believe and what we actually believe are two different things. And that is, most of the things that we hold on to in life that are sinful have an element of joy in them. Guys like watching TV or, you know, if your addiction is golf, it's because you like golf. Your addiction is uh, substance abuse, then it's because you like the feeling that it gives you. You know, if it's a bad relationship, it's because of the feeling, the joy that that relationship gives you. I mean, it's, it's, there's a certain joy in it. And I think sometimes we don't believe the promise that the joy that comes from a renewed fellowship with Jesus and a pure conscience before the Lord is more pleasurable than the sin itself. You see, when you actually believe that, you know, I want God more than I want this thing. He means more to me. He's more satisfying. I find my life sings. I'm free. When you actually believe that, you're willing to give stuff up. It's like my my little son who's holding on to a toy and fighting with my daughter, and he wants the toy, and I try to go up and grab it from him. He's going to get all upset I take it away from him because his heart's set on the joy of that toy. But if I hold up to him a candy bar or a piece of ice cream, well, then he's, oh, he's willing to let go. Why? Because the ice cream's more important. It's more satisfying than the car or the truck. So at the moment that we actually believe that to obey the Lord and to experience greater measures of His fellowship and joy in life is more satisfying than the thing, that's the point at which you will let go. But you have to believe on the other side. The other side is infinitely more satisfying than the thing that's keeping you from Him. And I think many of us doubt that. We think, ah, it's too hard to let go of it. I'll lose joy in life. Ah, I guarantee you the the joy on the other side is far more. So there you have a a basic, and you could add more to these, but a basic biblical self-examination, the requirements. It requires God's grace. You've got to be able to open your life up before God and seek Him. You know, it, it requires a clear goal that you want more of the presence of God in your life, and you want to be more faithful in His call on your life. And you need to have this standard that is overlay the standard of the gospel in the life of Jesus. So if you spend some time noodling through your motivations and inclinations and affections and figure out by the grace of God where there is out of the alignment is, is whacked. And then last, seek genuine repentance and change. I mean, brothers and sisters, that's what our, that's what the culture needs to see around us. That's what we need to experience. And that is, I hope, the end um, for this particular message and the aim of this particular message. So what I'd like to propose to you, we've got four days left in the old year, right? Four days. Beginning tonight, I propose, I challenge you, to spend each time each day just doing those four things. Crying out to the Lord saying, Will you search me, O God, and know my heart? Will you test me and know my anxious thoughts? See if there's any offensive way in me and then lead me in the way everlasting. You pray those prayers and will you keep in mind the goal that ultimately it's more of God that you desire, more of Christ that you desire, greater faithfulness to Christ, the joy that comes with that. That you will use the standard of the gospel as your measure 
And then by the grace of God, and with great courage, seek change and repentance. And watch your life begin to sing um, with new song. That's, that's, that's the proposal. Because brothers and sisters, I so desire in my own life as well as the life of the community of faith that I'm a part of and, and the church at large to see us put that pedal to the metal. To stop jogging to finish and run to win. That's not what we were created to do. Not created to jog to finish, but to race to win. Pedal to the metal. That's, that's my hope. That's my prayer. Now will you, in this kind of final moments that I'm up here, will you join me in a time of prayer uh, on your knees? And let's just start. It's just a start. But if you can, just kneel down before God tonight and begin the process of self-evaluation. And then we'll close with a few songs of worship. Let me ask you just to pray David's prayer. I just want you to ask if you're willing to and to pray sincerely. Lord God, would you please search me? Will you show me what is offensive to you and what is keeping the fullness of what you have for me? Will you do that? And allow the gospel to permeate your mind and just to what you know of it, just to use as the standard by which you spend just a few moments examining your life and praying that prayer. Will you do that right now for a few minutes? Now, if you know those things, if, if you're aware that there are certain things that are hindering your life, your following of Jesus, then next, just pray, Lord God of heaven, please, will you give me the grace and the strength to begin the process of repenting from these things and changing and rooting them out of our lives for the greater joy of, of obedience and the greater joy of, of knowing that we have a pure conscience before you, the joy of knowing your presence. We ask for strength to repent. Gracious Father, we, we come to you as the author of mercy. The one who has promised that if we humble ourselves, truly humble ourselves to the point where we don't hold on.